Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Con Man's Answer Show live every week. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to me and follow me on my social media at Con Man's Answers to stay up to date with the show and more. Today is episode 72 with Dr. Nikhil Chowdhury. He's an evolutionary anthropologist who lectures at Cambridge University. Without further ado, we're back. Third time's a charm. It should, we should be good. Um, before, when uh, we had some connection trouble, we, I just asked you, the way I start every episode is I have my guests introduce themselves, say what they do, what they're interested in, things like that. So go ahead and restart. Cool. So I'm uh, Nikhil Chowdhury, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist, a lecturer at University of Cambridge. And what I do is really try and understand how humans behave using evolutionary biology. So sort of understanding how natural selection would have shaped the way we think and our desires to, to make us behave in a way that maximizes survival and reproduction. Um, and I guess specifically a lot of my work until now has been with hunter-gatherers. And I mean, we can go into that in a bit, like why I work yeah. with hunter-gatherers. But um, yeah, I mainly have worked with uh, a pygmy society of hunter-gatherers called the Bayaka, who live in the rainforests of Congo. So I don't know if you have anything to, uh, any information on this, but when you say evolutionary biology, uh, I've seen a couple of videos, a couple of clips, a couple of podcast things that um, evolutionary biologists talk about how detrimental things like porn and sex addiction can be in this today's society because of and like instagram and things like that because of this it's something called super stimuli do you know anything about that uh yeah i mean it's not what i studied but i imagine what they mean is our brain has evolved under certain conditions and super stimuli what you've got is you're taking you're taking some sort of stimuli which our brain evolved to respond to, but using modern technology, you're sort of amplifying it so that you get this hyper response. And, you know, that's why we see things like addiction to social media. It's, it's almost hijacking the circuitry that's evolved in our brain for very different reasons and taking the perfect ingredients to like get it fixed or really uh, addicted or riled up. So I guess that's what they mean by super stimuli, most likely. And so you said you taught you study like society and why humans do specific things. Is there any correlation between why humans, besides survival, because I'm guessing that's the number one reason, but is there any um, evolutionary reason besides survival of why humans uh, tend to coagulate and join together in societies in larger tribes especially like cities and things like why why do our cities keep getting larger and why do our like societies keep getting bigger as humans sure yeah i can i can answer that so a couple of points just coming off of the question you asked so the first thing and i think that's that's probably the tendency um to think from an evolutionary point of view what we do is ultimately for survival but I'd actually say survival is only a means to reproduction, right? Evolution and natural selection works by replication of genes. So actually, survival is not quite the end goal. The end goal is to replicate your genes as much as possible. So if you, I say goal, I'm putting a narrative on it. But if you, for example, let's say there were two individuals and one had a 
a behavioural strategy encoded in their genetics to spend every waking minute trying to survive. And the other had a sort of balance like, oh, I'll try and survive, but I might take a few risks and try and reproduce as well. Obviously, that second one's the one who's going to pass on their genes. So, so survival is not actually the end goal. It's just a means to reproduction. So sometimes humans actually do things like taking big risks, which might seem counterintuitive because it's not good for their survival. But it's no good surviving if you're not going to reproduce. So that's one thing I'd say. Now, going on to the core part of your question, which was why we join larger societies and groups still start keep getting bigger and bigger so the idea would be that because humans are good at cooperating right we can we have the ability to cooperate in groups rather than just often in the animal kingdom we see cooperation even bacteria cooperate with one another but it tends to be limited to Usually it's limited to genetic relatives. Um, but in humans, we can cooperate on these larger scales. And part of the reason for that is we have the ability to internalize social norms. Like we have culture, basically. And you do see culture in other animals, but I won't, I won't get into that debate. But as soon as you've got culture, you have the opportunity and you've got boundaries between groups so you've got groups competing with one another you know warfare they may be trying to steal some resource or gain territory what you're going to get is of course larger groups are the ones who are going to win in those competitions so groups which tend to be larger are going to outcompete and assimilate often it's not that the smaller groups get go extinct they get assimilated into the larger group and then they you know, unlike genetics, culture can change in your life. So if you're in one tribe and I'm in another larger tribe and we beat you in a war, it's not that we necessarily kill all of you. We then take you into our tribe and you now, your group identity becomes the name and the practices or religion of my group. So you see this continuous increase in the size of groups because as time goes on, of course, larger groups are going to be more and more successful and assimilate more and more other groups. Um, and part of, actually, you mentioned tribalism uh, and the size of groups. It, this religion actually really relates to this. There's, a, there's quite an influential hypothesis slash theory that the function of moralistic gods, so these are gods who care about how you interact with others and they know everything and they can punish you, is to enhance group cooperation. So it allows, you know, if you're in a small group, right, and you go for a little raid, there's some warfare, and you're being a bit selfish, and you're standing at the back, no one wants to be on the front line, no one wants to risk their life, then everyone else is going to see that, and they're going to punish you, so you know not to do that. But if you're in a large group, as these groups are getting larger, like you say, Who's going to really know? You know, if you're just hiding in the background and there are like thousands of other people, it's hard to know who's cheating, who's not playing by the group's rules, who's not putting the group above themselves. And that's where we think that moralistic gods came in. Because moralistic gods, they prescribe how you need to behave towards your co-religionists, towards other members of your group. 
And importantly, they know everything. So even though in a big group, we might not know, I might not know whether you're on the front line, the God does know. And also on top of that, he punishes you, right? So if, if you're not on the front line or if you're not behaving for the good of your people, you've got that punishment. So there's a motivation there to, in these larger groups, when you start to see these moralistic gods emerge in human history, it seems to correlate when, with when groups, got, groups and tribes got so large that you needed some external policing of behavior. Yeah, and so that's fascinating because is there any evolutionary reason why? Because you would think that in a larger group, the like the morality of the people within the group and for the other people outside would be the highest, like the highest held um, virtue almost. But like, what is the evolutionary, um, I guess, reason for things like uh, rationalizing immoral acts? So why, like, I guess you could say, like, Nazi Germany, why they coagulated and they became a group around a so, such an immoral idea, but they mm. worked for them, you know? Why, how can it be so that with these, when, when, when these gods have been um, immortalized and, but they've been moral, were they also immortalizing irrational and immoral things depending on the group? Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head, right? So moralistic gods and you can see this even in in religions that are around today they tend to emphasize what we call morality and behaving for the good of the group not behaving for the good of everyone right you know in lots of religious texts you can see them talking about you know non-believers or anyone who worships other gods and actually the behaviors prescribed towards those other groups, towards those other religions or the non-believers can be quite aggressive and violent. So I think actually I wouldn't say that moralistic gods, as we call them, interestingly, are to, are promoting moral behavior. They're promoting moral behavior towards members of the same group and immoral or hostile behavior towards other groups. Because of course, groups which had these, we call it parochial altruism, and you can see it in our psychology. We're so accustomed to internalizing a group identity and then feeling sort of aggressive towards anyone who's not in that group. And, and those religions which could effectively harness that part of our psychology or work with it, groups with those religions did very well. Because, you know, in, in battle, when it came to sacrificing yourself for the group, then, then the, the group members were willing to do that. So that makes sense for, um, for groups who are not within a specific region. So, like, that makes sense, like, let, we can do it from modern age, from the reason that you would, as a country, would um, demonize another country or another people within another country. But why does it happen internally? Why can't it happen internally in, in a tribe or in a um, country where they ostracize people within their own, even ethnicity sometimes, you know? Yeah. You can go ahead and answer that. Sure. So, okay, there are two, two things there. One is, do they are they ostracizing an individual or a group? So when you're ostracizing an individual, actually it's often because that individual isn't obeying the group norm. So maybe there's some group norm like, you know, you shouldn't eat this food or you 
you need to be generous to all other members of the group and ostracizing is a form of punishment right you're you're realigning that individual's selfish interests with group interests by saying if you don't do what's good for the group we're going to punish you and therefore even though you might want to be selfish we're going to make it that actually what's best for you is to do what's good for the group but like you say now we see we see you know certain ethnic ethnic minorities are marginalized or you might see other group other identifying features of subcultures or subgroups like i don't know whether that's individuals who are homosexual or individuals who support a a certain football club etc now with ethnicity we can sort of see the roots more readily because of course in the past when all of these aspects of our psychology were evolving it was different ethno-linguistic groups that were competing with each other it's a relatively novel thing that we actually have large-scale nation states comprised of different different ethnic mm-hmm. groups so i guess our psychology is probably to some degree all of this stuff is flexible and i don't want to imply any genetic determinism mm-hmm. but to some degree our psychology may be predisposed to a sense of feeling more altruistic or let's say the other way feeling more hostile towards people who are considered an outgroup and those the characteristics for identifying an outgroup may be what language they speak or you know what rituals they do or what skin color they have even now i'm not saying this is ingrained in human nature i'm saying that human nature is it's quite able it's quite ready to go in that direction but with the right sort of values you can you can shift it in another yeah. direction so that's fascinating for a couple of reasons but the main one is it's almost like there is not a like you said you don't want to get into genetic term, determinism but there's almost a a um like how i was i was re- uh, reading this the other day it's like not everybody is afraid of spiders and snakes, but you can code someone to be afraid of spiders and snakes because of past humans being attacked by them, right? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and so it's almost like you can, because there was ethnic and racial wars before, because the groups were in different, uh, different regions of the world, they look different. And because of that, you can almost have it, if coded the wrong way, you can almost condition someone to be, um racist basically yeah and i'm going to backtrack a little bit on that because you what you just mentioned highlighted something i i probably didn't specify which is actually you know in in the past we often lived in smaller scale societies and you know groups which were actually at war with each other would have been quite close together you wouldn't have had you know fights between populations from different countries so skin color you know is probably going to be quite similar but it's were predisposed to have these markers of group identity, like your language is one, um, maybe certain ways of dressing, maybe certain wall charts. And it's really interesting how we see all of these things manifest in modern society. Like I said, football fans or members of a particular religion, they all have their own charms. Um, they have their own languages they have their own costumes you know if you look at people going to pray they'll be wearing something of course you know wearing the uniform if you're in an army or wearing a particular shirt if you're supporting a a sports team and all the songs we see them sing together and even 
if you look amongst teenagers, I think this really highlights it. Well, adolescence is the time in your life where you're sort of moving out of being in, in your family and you're starting to develop your own relationships with other people and you're searching for that group identity. And with teenagers, you can really see how the music you listen to or the clothes you wear, they determine what subculture you're a part of. So you're creating that group identity, hijacking that part of the brain that says, this person dresses like me, or this person sings the same ritualistic songs as me, and therefore that's my group and we dislike other groups. And I really remember that when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I used to fight at school. There was one, one group of people who liked hip hop and another who liked rock music. And we'd fight over what radio station to play. And you genuinely feel dislike to these people, nothing to do with their personality. They're in a different tribe to you because they like different music. You also had the grungers who had like all the skater clothes on. And then the rude boys who dressed more like gangsters and again you hate each other based on nothing more than the the markers of what group you belong to and so is there an evolution there's a <laughs> bunch of things packed in there that that um that you make me think about because not only does it like these that immediately happen with um teenagers but it readily happens and you can even become violent with teenage boys you know, that could be their development and the, the whole testosterone thing. But is there an evolutionary reason why people are placed in hierarchies from the get-go? Like, even in those small subgroups, even in, like, you have a friend group or a football team. Uh, I'm thinking American football, but soccer team, too. Um, there's a captain, you know? Um, and that person is sort of elevated to that position by the peers. Is there a, is there a evolutionary reason why people are almost elected or appointed to a position of power yeah so actually quite interestingly and maybe a misconception about ancestral societies you know when we were all hunter gatherers is that they're actually egalitarian they have no hierarchy at all this idea that there was some alpha male running around in the jungle like it's a complete caricature um there is no hierarchy at all. And if anyone tries to be dominant or force someone to do what they want or say, I'm the leader, it just doesn't work. Everyone else will start laughing at them. The threat of ostracism is high. And the reason for that, without digressing too much, is just in our you know, prehistory, we were so dependent on one another when we were hunting avarice. There's no food storage, you know, whether you're going to, kill an animal one day is very variable. So everyone needs each other. You all need to share food and work together because I might not get any food today and you might, <clears throat> so I need you, but then tomorrow maybe you don't hunt any animals and then you need me. So you can't really say I'm above you in the hierarchy or I'm gonna tell you what to do. And then tomorrow say, oh, by the way, I didn't get any meat. Can you share with me, right? So it's, a, it's an equal playing field. And what we've seen since then is the emergence of hierarchy. So since about 10,000 years ago, once we started to stop hunting and gathering and started to actually farm and uh, practice cultivation, you see hierarchy emerge. And, and I'd say there are two types. One is a sort of organic emergence of hierarchy whereby individuals who are more dominant for whatever reason say, you know, they're just more ambitious or they might be stronger. There are all, all sorts of reasons. 
they can now actually afford to try and take a higher place in the hierarchy because they don't have that food insecurity where they're going to ask me for meat tomorrow. They've actually got land and they've got a harvest and they no longer have that interdependence on everyone else. So they can afford to, to try and be dominant, to try and monopolize resources and, and to take, you know, manipulate others. <clears throat> they just wouldn't get away with that as hunter-gatherers because no one's self-sufficient. Now, the other form of hierarchy is less of a dominance hierarchy. We say dominance is when someone is higher in the hierarchy because they're coercing others, they're forcing others with threats such that others are submissive. Whereas prestige is a different type of social status. Prestige is given by others. It's, it's not taken, but it's conferred. Maybe you're very skilled or you're very generous or you're very charismatic and therefore you become prestigious. And I willingly elevate you in the hierarchy. Everyone else is happy to appoint you at a higher position. And the reason that emerges is that there are a few things. So if you're particularly skilled or you're going to be bringing a lot of benefits to the group, we want to keep you around. So we might say, okay, you can be the leader. You can have first pick of, you know, who you're going to marry or, uh, you know, we'll give you lots of gifts. And now we're going to benefit from the fact that actually you're a great warrior and we've got you in our group. Um, and, and part of the reason, it's not just to keep you around, part of the reason we need leaders in bigger societies is cooperation and coordination of the society is very important. So if you think about the warfare I was talking about before, if you've got a bunch of people who are all really disorganized going into war, they're not going to do very well. You need some system of coordinating behavior efficiently in this large group. Okay, I know you're going to go around the back, and then we're going to wait for the enemy to come down the hill and blah, blah, blah. So you need coordination. It's not just warfare. In all activities between a group, you need coordination. And that's where you need leaders. You need someone who has this macroscopic view who can say, okay, you do that, you do that. Let's have an efficient division of labor, etc." So once groups get large enough, you sort of need to start creating individuals at elevated positions who can coordinate efforts and increase the efficiency of groups. So that's fascinating that, um, that uh, hunter and gatherer tribes never had hierarchies, but I have a question regarding that. Um, even though they didn't have positions of power technically, or even wouldn't some people, skillful people still have, levels of prestige given onto them in hunter-gatherer tribes. Yeah, no, I think you, you, you're exactly right that we call them egalitarian and we say they have no hierarchy. And actually one of the things I was arguing with my PhD was, you're right, they don't have dominance hierarchies like we see in other primates and throughout the animal kingdom and in many societies uh, in the last 10,000 years. But prestige, I think prestige still existed. I think people who were good hunters or very charismatic or had really great knowledge of medicinal plants, these individuals did gain prestige. And there was no formal rank. They weren't able to tell anyone what to do. But people, we could say people respected them more. 
and that still had knock-on effects for survival and reproduction because if you know where all you know how to heal me you know what i'm going you're going to give me if i've got uh you know some respiratory infection and you give me a plant and i get better then i respect you i might give you more food or or help you out in times of need and um as such you can sort of you and your family are better looked after by everyone else and and that's going to help your survival and reproduction so i, I do think prestige exists in hunter-gatherers some people might debate that or might say that it doesn't really have any consequences but but i agree with you that, that it does so when does because you said dominance hierarchy started to arise in leadership positions in agriculture but when does the specific distribution and large variety of dominance hierarchies occur like the dominance hierarchy of doctors of lawyers you know when does the societal dominance hierarchies how you can you can win in different aspects and different areas emerge, regardless of just like king kingship or leader agriculture, um, farmer type thing. Yeah, so it's it, it's interesting with humans because sometimes it's hard to disentangle whether it's a dominance or prestige hierarchy. I mean, these are all just constructs and they're not always mutually exclusive, but you know, like when you're talking about modern day social status you know it probably is more accurate to say you know like a, a really famous lawyer is very prestigious rather than dominant because he's not really taking anything or threatening anything it's more that others respect him and give him this or her sorry this higher position in society um so I would say that's really just a consequence of how economic systems change. So these different avenues you're talking about are just as, as societies get larger and larger, we see more and more division of labor. So in small scale hunter-gatherers, you know, you might have some people who are better at fishing and some who are better at collecting honey and you might get a bit of division of labor, but people are generally doing the same thing. And then in farming societies, you might have some people who own more land and then they have laborers and there's a bit more division. And at what we've seen then, I don't know, I guess in manufacturing, most people are working in the factories, but as, as economies get more and more developed, we see an increased specialization in division of labor. So now you've got lawyers, you've got butchers, you've got, um, you know, doctors, etc. And as you get that increased specialization within each uh, you know, trade, you've got a hierarchy within that. You've got the person who's like, you know, doing work experience, the apprentice, the, uh, the early career stage, then, and so on. So you get, as division of labor gets more and more specific within a society, you get these increasingly narrow streams of hierarchies within that. And I'd say there's an overarching organizing hierarchy going on there, which is to a large degree, at least in, you know, in countries like the UK and, and in the States, is probably determined principally by your wealth. How rich are you? And that is the sort of the vague determinant of what, what your position is. We call it social class. So, or socio-economic status. So 
two little points that you pointed out. One would be in these hierarchies when they start to emerge. Is the is the um, large quantity of males at the higher of these hierarchies mainly in dominance hierarchies, or were males also appointed in these prestigious at a higher rate than females until modern day societies? Was it that they took it and because they were powerful and maybe they were the best hunters and maybe they were the strongest, so they could they could farm the best and or um, race cattle the best was that why they were elected or was it was there also appointing appointment because of prestige to these males at a higher rate yeah so i think if we go back a bit and think about other animals and other primates you know our, our distant cousins so to speak hierarchies are often sex specific so males will have their own hierarchies and females will have their own hierarchies. And sometimes you might look at a particular species and say, oh, the males dominate the females, although that's not always the case. So in bonobos, I don't quote me on this, well, it's on the record, but I'm not I'm not fully a primatologist, certainly. So but I think in bonobos maybe females are more dominant over males. So you've got this sort of you've got female dominance hierarchies, male dominance hierarchies, and then intersex sort of dominance are the females dominant of the males and vice versa yeah i think in bonobos because females are better at making coalitions they actually can dominate the males um and then in humans you've got well in hunter gatherers there is no hierarchy neither uh, within sexes or between the sexes and then later on you're right in that I guess if you're talking about modern day hierarchies, I don't even know whether I'd call it hierarchy now. I mean, it's just different levels of status, you know, uh, socioeconomic status, which yeah. is sort of the same thing. There, of course, you've got, well, certainly nowadays we're seeing almost the level of female participation in the labor forces constantly uh, rising up towards the same level as males. And I'd say the hierarchy is almost if we call it that, it's almost includes both sexes, you know, you can have a female lawyer and a male lawyer competing for the same position. Now in that long interim period of, you know, 10, 12,000 years in the farmers and the pastoralists, etc., I, it's not always the case, but in the majority of cases, I'd say it probably male hierarchies are at least more pronounced. And certainly they're a lot better studied, although I'm quite interested in understanding female hierarchies and female positions, but I think we need to do a lot more work on understanding mm. that. But I think the reason for that, now, okay, this it's not something that can be answered super quickly, but I guess I'll try and give a really succinct overview, which is that, in mammals generally, and in, even outside of mammals, you've got males and females, and females are a lot more limited in their uh, reproductive output, right? So think about humans. A woman who is really high in her reproductive output might have, say, 12 or 13 kids over her lifetime if, she, if she's having children on a very regular basis. Whereas a, a man, hypothetically, could be having 
12 or 13 kids in, in a couple of days, right? You could be having hundreds of thousands of, of kids over their lifetime. I think, I think Genghis Khan, some genetic studies indicate that Genghis Khan is related to about point, he's the direct male ancestor of about 0.5% of all humans, um, which is crazy, right? Now, that's just not possible for a woman, right? That, yeah. Because they're pregnant for nine months and then they're breastfeeding and so on. Now, because of this, males tend to monopolize resources um, because, say you're, you know, if we assume that everything we do, not on a conscious level, but whether through cultural evolution or some instinct, etc., is to maximize uh, the success of our lineage, the survival of our genes, then... Have I still got you, by the way? Because it's frozen on my screen. Carry on. Cool. So where we were, I think I was just saying about why in the last, you know, why from 10,000 odd years ago when hierarchies emerged until fairly recently where we've got, you know, market economies, why does it tend to be that hierarchies are more based on male position and and uh, whilst I am interested in female hierarchies, at least what we know principally at the moment is is discussion of male positions of power, etc. So I think to understand that, and I'll try and put it succinctly because it's I, I we don't have time probably for a detailed explanation. Is, we have a time for a detailed explanation if you want to get into it. It's just if you want to talk about it. Okay, I'll give a I'll give a moderate, uh, moderately yeah. long explanation then, um, which is that across the animal kingdom, particularly in mammals, let's focus on mammals, the reproductive output of males versus females is much higher, right? So the female mammals have internal gestation, so they're busy with pregnancy yeah. and they're the young is born and they're busy breastfeeding. So, um, and then in humans, we can imagine a woman could have a maximum of say, you know, let's assume they're not having loads of twins or quadruplets. They probably have 12, 13, 15, yeah. whereas, uh, you know, a man could have that in a few days, right? There's the egg is very expensive. Pregnancy lasts nine months. Breastfeeding, you know, in small scale societies often goes on for two years or so. Whereas a man, you know, sperm is very cheap and a man doesn't need to get pregnant, doesn't get pregnant and doesn't breastfeed. So because of this, basically the, the ceiling, the, the reproductive success ceiling for men is way, way higher than for women. So if you imagine if you've got a bunch of resources, say you've got loads of wealth, you're you and your wife have accumulated loads of wealth and you're deciding how you're going to split that wealth up between your son and daughter. And we're implicitly assuming here that your behavior, either through cultural evolution or through, uh, you know, evolved psychological processes, your behavior is, uh, is optimized to maximize the success of your lineage and the replication of your genes, then you're probably better off giving that wealth to your son 
than your daughter because you know they can give you a higher return on investment so to speak you know that wealth might translate to a lot more grandchildren if you give it to your son rather than your daughter um so i would say that since we had you know hunter gatherers don't accumulate they don't have resources their immediate return most hunter gatherers they get food they consume it but then once we were farmers or pastoralists we have land and we have livestock and then the parents are principally giving that land and livestock to the sons because you know you could go to a pastoralist site and eat the opium and you can predict how many children a man will have based on how many camels or, or goats or whatever he's inherited from his parents you can't predict how many children a daughter uh, uh, a woman would have based on inherit well inheritance just simply goes down the male line don't know whether he was an anthropologist but a, a burl this scholar said the cow is the enemy of matrimony meaning that once you've got livestock everything goes down the male line um, because resources translate to reproductive success for, for males, not so much for females. So this is a difficult question. So if you can't answer it, I mean, obviously that's fine, but it seems as though almost all evolution has had an implication on reproduction and sex. So male and female. So, and for most, I mean, I'm juggling with nails here, but for most of history, gender has also correlated with sex, correct? So what happens in the society as a whole when gender starts to become more fluid, as we're seeing in today's time, mm. because of that evolutionary uh, dependence on sex, biological sex? Sure. Okay, cool question. And I'm glad you asked because... Sometimes I avoid these topics, right, where uh, it's time for me to vent, not vent, but it's time for me to, you know, just speak openly because I think it's important, which is that we're in a time where certain topics are avoided because we have a cancel culture. Mm -hmm. It pisses me off, right? Pisses me off too. No! No! Cool. So I'm just going to carry up. So carry on. Well, I'm going to start answering that same question again, which was, yeah, it was about basically now gender is more fluid and how this fits in with the fact that uh, evolution seems to have had a, a large impact on sex and, and how sex differences play out, etc. Um, so, yeah, I... I'm glad you asked because I think it's important and I, I've been avoiding such topics a lot of the time and I've realized more and more that I'm not going to do that anymore, Good. even though we live in a council culture where people are just ready to point the finger and yeah. they're just, yeah, just hostile really. Um, before you and I, do that, I just wanted to say this too. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just want to say this. Sure. I, um, He's an evolutionary biologist, but I don't know if you know anything about Brett Weinstein, but he yeah. has been he has been attacked heavily um, by that culture for pointing out for pointing out 
science and, and uh, going to a, a liberal arts school myself in Oregon, which is near Portland, which is very progressive leaning, which universities tend to be, they, they tend to, it, yeah, just get into it. I, I, I will. No, that, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you say, it's, it can just be science sometimes. And, but, but more generally, this cancel culture is just not helping anyone. Because if we can't have a discussion, what if people do have wrong views? If, you, if you're not going to talk to them and just shoot them down immediately and get them sacked, you know, the, the point of these things should be to communally work out what our value system is and how we can shift society towards that. The point is not to just punish people who don't hold those values. Sometimes that's important, but that shouldn't be the end goal. It's like people just want to be pissed off now and find someone to take their anger out on. You're not doing anyone any favors by just jumping the gun, like pointing pointing a finger, and it's certainly by by removing the possibility for conversation, we're getting further and further away from that. So, I absolutely detest the place we're in politically. For you know, I never thought I'd be someone who would change the content of my my lecture courses because I just can't be bothered to deal with some of the the like abuse I will get based based on things which are really just an important thing with science and anyone who actually has a, a good understanding of what the relationship between science or truth and morality it, it's that these are different domains you know so David Hume the philosopher said he talked about the naturalistic fallacy. They're saying you can't move from an is statement to an ought statement. You can't say the world is like this and therefore we ought to be that. You can't say this is natural, therefore it's good, or this is unnatural, therefore it's bad. What does that mean? That medicine's bad or that, that violence between different ethnicities is good? What's natural has no bearing on what our moral value system should be. And actually, I think in, a, in many cases, getting to, to the sort of the ideal utopia would mean overcoming some of our natural instincts. So in that respect, making scientific statements, it, it's actually understanding some of these problems that might be ingrained in human nature is essential for us to move past them. Yet, people are ready to say, oh, you've said men are like this and women are like that, or you've said this race is like this and that race is like that. Whether these statements are true or not is a scientific discussion, which should be had, and whether they translate to what our value system should be. I mean, there need not be any relationship between what is true and what we aim to strive for and, and manipulate in society. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, a sort of digression, an event on the fact that the, the modern state of conversation and politics is, is a bit of a mess. And people need, to stop, people need to stop virtue signaling and feeling self-righteous or good about themselves just by pointing the finger. If you actually give a shit, 
then think about how you can foster the implementation or spread of your values in society, not how many you know people's jobs you can put in jeopardy. That that's not the way forward. Yeah, it's dangerous. Um, part of the reason I started, well, I started doing this show like after the accidental period was that it was I was learning more actually than I learned at university at school, which is. Oh. Which is not, um, I study, so I want to be, I want to go into, I want to become an attorney. It's my whole thing. And that doesn't really have anything to do with the universities. But you have to take like politics and government. I'm majoring in politics and government and then philosophy, which are two very different spheres. And the yeah. politics and government is very dominated by left-leaning spheres. Almost never you get a conservative, uh, conservative conversation, which is, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but it's like you need to have both sides. And the dangerous thing about science and limiting what scientists can be able to say, especially biologists, right? Especially people who have studied humans, is that we in this modern way exist so small of a sphere of all humans have like for the, like the modern human is what, 350,000 years old, right? Um, And the modern society human is... I mean, you could go back to ancient Greece or 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 Egypt, I guess. But like, even like, let's we can go back to like Europe. Western society really started becoming what I don't know how long ago, five thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. Um, and so like it when you when you and on that whole time there has been a distinction between the sexes, the 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 male and women, and we have evolved like you said, for the number one reason to reproduce between each other, right? And by limiting that discussion and saying that there, there isn't a, that there isn't an important, like gender fluidity or the fluidness of gender is more important than biological sex, I think is appalling. And I also think it's, it's uh, dangerous because like, where do you go from there? You know, I feel like just like spiral downfall of society is where what happens inevitably once you start taking science out of the equation. Sure. Yeah. Let me just jump in there because I also want to make sure I don't misrepresent my views, which is I I don't think biological sex, you know, and is more or less important than gender fluidity. I mean, these are these are. Or again, I think to some degree these are different discussions. How how we want to approach the concept of gender in society, and you know what terms we use, or how we treat people, or what we encourage children to do, is one discussion, and that may be informed by understanding biological sex differences. I certainly think, you know. The, to some degree, you could, you, in the sphere of morality, one might say understanding gender fluidity and making decisions based on that is more important, right? Because it's impacting yeah. lots of people, whereas biological sex is more, it's not, it's, like I said, it's not saying anything about morality, it's just saying the way things are. And, and even, you know, you could make a case that from a scientific perspective, even the concept of biological sex might be too limiting you know there are a lot of sex hormones which males have more of and women have less of and vice versa and those exist on the spectrum right so males have more testosterone than females but also within males some males have more testosterone 
than other males. So you could argue that does it even make sense to create a dichotomy there? Maybe maybe we can see sex on the spectrum too, or you know that's a separate discussion. I just I just think we need to avoid jumping the gun, and especially like you say with science, thinking that maybe science can inform politics in some way. Certainly not in the sense of just because something is that it is natural that it's good or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but by trying to shut down any scientific truth that might be conflicting in any way with someone's political or moral agenda is a very slippery slope and, and certainly shouldn't be the cause for someone to lose their job. If your job is to study, you know, genetic differences between the Y chromosome, you know, some difference between the Y chromosome and X chromosome, right? That's just, that's just what your job is. And, and there's probably a lot of value to come out of that um, in you know, medicine, uh, all sorts of spheres. And yeah, it, it's just, just a mess that people are so happy to, to not consider the broader implications outside mm-hmm. of their particular agenda um for sure dude i i and i think they they don't really i mean you could answer this more than anybody but i don't think especially i don't think uh they belong i mean they belong in the same sphere but they they're they're two different things if you want to make an argument that gender is fluid and and it does male and female are on the gender spectrum but they're not limiting the gender spectrum you have to make an argument that sex is naturally male or naturally female and so by by limiting like like you said by studying x x x y and then there's some other ones there's like x x y and things like that you're not studying the distinction between gender you're just studying the distinctions between how humans are created by other humans right by through the reproductive process you're not necessarily yeah. studying how people live their lives you're studying yeah. how people are created and how people evolve over time, right? And those aren't yeah. they're not the same thing. And I think politics merges them together too much. Yeah, yeah. And, and people people with a strong value system or political agenda related to gender might dislike the study of biological sex. And that that's just counterproductive. It just because there are differences between males and females does not, you know, understanding those differences probably has something to contribute towards the broader discussion about, you know, yeah, gender, transgender, transsexuals, uh, differences in sexuality, all of these things, you know, they can be informed in some way. I'm sure there's some value to be had from the understanding of biological sex and it, it doesn't need to be this conflict where somehow saying something about biological sex is imposing or, or setting a trajectory for our political agenda. Mm-hmm. They're different spheres, but one might benefit from the other. And certainly there's mm-hmm. no point trying to suppress um, certain scientific truths. There's also pushback on front cancer culture, which I think is, I want to know your opinion, but I think it's just, it's, it's just wild that studying heterosexuality and studying the biological sexes is inherently misogynistic and inherently um, like should be canceled. 
because it's not inclusive of everything, which is, it just doesn't make any sense because, I mean, you can, you can, you can enlighten me on your opinion, opinions on this, but I feel like if you want to study anything, you're allowed to study the, I don't want to say norm, the normalcy because it, like we said, there's, we're becoming more progressive in life, but the standard almost for evolutionary um, reproduction, which is heterosexuality. And by studying that, you're not necessarily studying how humans behave in sexual acts, but how evolution has its course in humans, you know? And I feel like a lot of the times when you're, when you're studying straightness or heterosexuality, people tend to want to cancel that because it's, too it, it's too normalized by society but you can make a very evolutionary anthropologist argument that you're studying how evolution occurs through humans and why it's important for there to be heterosexuality in a mammal such as humans sure yeah and so first thing i'd say is actually the idea we have to be very careful with the idea of a norm yeah. and we humans like to create categories and they like to create thresholds but usually the world doesn't work like that everything's on a continuum i think you said you studied philosophy i'm sure you've thought about this non like to no end you know we create categories if i study tables you know as a and i'm a physicist you know where what, what do you call a table is it a particular structure of atoms does it have to have four legs, whatever, whatever, um, we create categories, but they are constructs. And in most cases, they are, they are constructs. And sometimes those constructs map onto the real world or some lens of viewing the real world more, more on a one-to-one -one basis. But I'm just trying to remember what I'm just going to say. Oh yeah. So even in sexuality, and you could say heterosexuality is the norm, but I mean, I think when you've got as many people who aren't heterosexual as, as we have in humans, then the word norm for heterosexuality is probably too liberal a use of the word norm in the sense. And, and in evolutionary anthropology, well, in, in different evolutionary social sciences, there's a large amount of study into sexuality, into homosexuality. My, um, one of the first supervisors I had who got me interested in the field, his one of his specialties was understanding homosexuality in the animal kingdom, um, in humans uh, and other species. That's actually one of the lectures I removed or, or was have been thinking about removing from my course just because I'm like, do I want to touch on these subjects? I mean, the lecture content itself, if anything, I'd say it's, it could be used as advocacy for gay rights. You know, it shows that this idea that homosexuality is unnatural is is quite a, a silly idea. And and even if it was unnatural, why would that matter? So, if anything, I say it was pro sexual fluidity or non heteronormative. I think that's probably the right word. Um, but I just, I just removed it, or, or I'm thinking of removing it, just to to avoid the the pushback. But in terms of your question of it should be fine to study the norm or, or the status quo, so to speak. Yeah, I mean we've got to we've got to start somewhere, and, and the only way we can study things is by using categories. 
And part of science is about updating those categories as we go along. And maybe by studying biological sex in terms of male and female, with enough study of that, we might we might say, um, actually, it's, it's more efficient to have more of a spectrum type category where we study levels of testosterone or levels of estrogen and have some multi-dimensional measure rather than of a sex dichotomy, some multi-dimensional sort of hormonal web of an individual's uh, endocrinological profile. They've got this much testosterone, this much progesterone or, or whatever. Um, and that's science updating the categories. And there's something else I wanted to say on this, which was, yeah, I mean, it, people are very willing to, again, to jump the gun, but they don't, they're not thinking outside of their agenda. If we didn't study reproduction and, you know, what, what maleness or femaleness in the context of reproduction, you know, how do you think we understand mutation rates or the speed of uh, resistance in in pathogens to to the human immune response, etc. Like you have to accept certain things, like the fact that the next generation, well, maybe not right now, but in up until recent past. Uh, and the status quo is that the next generation will be born through heterosexual sex. So if we want to understand, you know, something to do with COVID and how it's going to affect the next generation or how different viruses, what, what the immune, level of immune resistance is going to be, etc., you have to take into account certain truths or facts about the world. And this is not making any statement about other forms of sexuality, whether they're valid or whether, you know, what we think about them morally. But we can't ignore that heterosexual sex leads to reproduction and therefore mm -hmm. um, in, for some people, for some topics, you have to study heterosexual sex. If you want to understand genes or say, say if they're genes related to homosexuality, which people might debate, you have to study homosexuals, right? Because that's that's what that's what you're studying you know it's it's not making any people can't study everything so some people have to study someone studying gender fluidity is going to be studying gender fluidity not just males versus females like it's you can probably hear a bit of frustration in my voice and it's just it's just having to the constant battle it seems right now mm. where we're getting to the point where scientists are like do you know what it's probably just not worth the effort. Like I'd, I'd probably rather just not. Yeah, it's sad though because it's like they they need to be they need to be studied because like especially with coagulating and existing me between men and women, um, there isn't one if if there is no preventative acts. One, I guess the first thing would be one. If they're attracted to each other they're and they're wanting to like they're wanting um a, a potential mate their sexual signaling to an, the opposite sex and then if there's no preventative measures uh, taken between the um mating process sex as we talk then another human is created and by not just understanding that and by not um diving into that i feel like it's not not only is it dangerous for society 
but it's also and that's not to say that marriage or um two people um parenthoods is better or worse i don't i'm I'm, I'm not studying that but i'm saying that if you don't study that natural process of a man and a woman meeting um having unprotected sex and then a, a child being born then we won't understand how genes like the, the way that genes create mutations like mm-hmm. you said and also how to how the next generation should be brought up and what's best for the next generation because i feel like a people a lot of people tend to think that what exists and the sexual preferences of the parents and of the individuals alive matters more than the next the offspring and i think there isn't there could be an argument to be made that what's best for the parents is second at most to what's best for the child right yeah 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 that's an interesting idea like and I, I, you, you can see it from both sides there right so i guess a lot a lot of the the hope in people with a certain agenda about you know promoting gender fluidity now right um let me caveat while you were asking that question, I was also thinking, oh, shit, I hope I haven't said anything that's going to get me in trouble, which is just typical of... Let me just... Anyone who does hear this, um, you know, maybe I've said something which isn't quite right or is offensive. Don't complain. Like, drop me an email and talk to me about it. Like, that's how that's how I'm going to learn. And also, sometimes in, in discussion, you can't... We don't want to spend two hours tiptoeing over over exactly how we articulate what we say. You know, maybe I've portrayed something in a particular way and it's not actually what I mean. Anyway, that's my disclaimer. I'm sure I have. Um, You guys can come after me. Don't go after him. Come after me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, going going to your point, yeah, I think it's important. We need to be thinking about the next generation and and parents' needs probably come second to offspring. and I guess a lot of people advocating for, you know, whichever particular, um, I don't know what the word would be, whichever particular view, viewpoint they have on gender, that that part of their motivation may be that they want they want the value system in society in the next generation or for potential children who are born who do have a different gender identity to, that they can live in more peace and and express themselves uh how they wish to so you know i i wouldn't say thinking about the next generation goes hand in hand with studying heterosexual sex but yeah as you say that's part of it so we have to we can't ignore that we need to be just tapping everything from different angles and a lot of it i guess is just framing and understanding the purpose of something we often study males and females and it's the purpose is nothing to do with understanding identity or even behavior it might be to do with understanding you know differences in life expectancy and we just need to remember that we study things for different reasons and if we remember the different motivations uh, and outcomes we can stop this crossover of science and politics or thinking that any study which breaks up participants by ethnic minority or country of origin has any bearing on a debate about differences in IQ or something you know mm-hmm. some some studies I mean race is a funny one because actually there are a whole load of biological problems with the concept of race but you know any study that studies 
males and females is somehow related to behavior or identity or differences in whatever it may be like intelligence or whatever like it's not a study about the age of puberty is a study about the age of puberty uh, and just you know keep it within that domain where does us where does individualism versus collectivism arise in evolutionary anthropology and biology because we tend to think that well in today's age like we were talking about especially in politics identity politics is huge uh, your individuality comes from a lot of the time your your group identity right um and sometimes being like going to a liberal school i can even if I say anything that has any undertone that could be made made seem as it's right leaning, I am just a straight white man who is privileged to whose identity they throw me into that category, regardless of what I believe, yeah. regardless of me being Colin, um, you know, having a family, things like that. They like to throw people in boxes, you know, um, or they like to identify themselves in their group identity. But but you know, for yeah. the at least the American principle was individuality comes before collectivization and now we're yeah. kind of flipping so where does where does group identity and individuality lend a hand in evolutionary anthropology yeah i mean so 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 many of the questions we're on now are like political and also philosophical and part of my brain wants to jump into that and then you know I, i'm just then commentating as me rather than uh, as a scientist I'll just quickly do that before I get on to the evolution, which is that, yeah, there's this, again, it comes back to that issue of categories. When we think philosophically, where do we, what, what categories are we going to create? Ultimately, they're all, almost any time you make a group or some category, there are going to be distinctions within that. So you can keep fine tuning them. I mean, say men and women is too, that's too broad. These just having these two big boxes, let's split it up. Let's add these. And, you know, for some people, they think actually the most helpful thing is just have these very few boxes. And then, you know, you've got LGBT and then you've got LGBTQ and then you've got ones, all these others. And I'm not saying one's better or not, but ultimately, what, how, unless you've got infinite number of uh, categories, you're always going to be lumping something. And I think ultimately what we need to do is just recognize that every single person is different and we just need to choose the categories which are maybe in science which are most impactful to the area of study and in society which are most helpful in representing certain trends within those boxes because otherwise we may as well make a category for nickel chowdhury date of birth 28th of march 1990 and and the whole point of categories is efficiency um, so, yeah, the, there is that balance between losing information and increasing in, uh, efficiency. Yeah. Um, in terms of your question about individualism and collectivism, I've thought about this quite a lot. I think, so hunter-gatherers, you really see they work and live as a group. They live in these camps, which might have, say, 30 to 60 individuals and everyone cooperates with each other and and then you get farmers where they tend to the sort of social network tends to be the family and extended family and i'd say now we're in the time where we live in 
nuclear families in, in the industrialized, economically developed world. And it seems to be, again, this matter of the economic system and the level of inter interdependence and cooperation needed versus the level of specialization. So in the hunter-gatherer group, you need this co-residency of a large group of people who help one another because getting food is so variable, there's no storage. And at least if you've got 15 people living together, 15 hunters in the same group, one of them is going to get some meat each day or whatever. But then with farmers, you don't have that same level of risk because they've got harvest, they've got food storage, there's not that same unpredictability. So the, the sort of cooperative social network shrinks to the extended family where there are these overlapping genetic interests. And then in modern sort of industrialized market economies, you have this very specialized division of labor, um, steady income, and you live in these nuclear family units and people don't even really have that much of a relationship with their extended family often. So you see this shift, both as economic systems get more specialized and with economic development, away from collectivism towards individualism. Um, and I think, so the, I think that's the underlying reason why. And the way it happens, the sort of mechanism is, societies which are more collectivistic it, it's through ritual um, that you can, it's through ritual and, and well, it ultimately it's the enforcement of group identity and how strongly that can be created. And ritual is one way of creating it. Movement in synchrony or chanting in synchrony. Again, coming back over and over again to the football fans versus people from different religions, this synchronous chanting and synchronous movement seems to be a repeated conserved ingredients of rituals think about the hacker for the new zealand rugby team or whatever it may be that bonds people we we know physiologically that bonds people and you release certain hormones and certain neurological processes happen which fuse the identity um You can just keep going. Yeah, so I was, I was just saying that the sort of mechanism by which collectivism is held up is, is creating group identity, creating strong group identity. And a principal way we do that is through ritual. So like we were talking about before, the football fans versus people of different religious groups, they all seem to have rituals that either involve synchronous movement or synchronous chanting and that we know physiologically that bonds people we can look at changes in their hormones or neurological processes or talk to them afterwards and if you get a group of people you know again why with our friends do we go out and dance or why do we like to in so many communities around the world you hang out have dinner and all sing together yeah i um i was hanging out with uh, uh a lot of Irish people last year. I was dating an Irish girl. And there was one evening where we all went back and we were just drinking and singing songs for hours. And you get this connectedness when you're singing together or dancing together. And 
and that seems to be a way of promoting the merging of group identities. I think it's Harvey Whitehouse, who's a, an anthropologist at Oxford, calls it identity fusion. And, and you, you create this sense that the self and the community uh, are becoming one, and that's collectivism. Whereas we look at individualistic society in, in economically developed populations, and ritual doesn't exist very much, you know. It, people don't belong to uh, groups, they don't engage in rituals. You only engage in rituals with a small bunch of people, your people you watch football matches with, or people, your friends who you go dancing with. And that's where the collectivism is still there. That's where community exists, but on a very small scale. Whereas people who still go to church on a regular basis, they have that sense of community. Every Sunday they're going and singing hymns together and they still, that the individualism is, is suppressed and the collectivism is enhanced. So, um, yeah, I think the mechanism is ritual largely and the reason is to do with economic systems becoming more, more specialised and less reliant on interdependence between members of a group. Yeah, the existential philosopher in me wants to say that individuality really doesn't have anything to do with anything because we're all like your individuality is all a part of a larger the larger group of you can even say humans, you could say live beings on earth and then you could even say particles in the universe and that becomes a whole thing and you start thinking about how individuality doesn't matter, but the human side you know, wants to say that the way you act is a part of your group, but it's also influences your group as much as the group influences you. So like an argument I like to give a lot of the time is if you shed positivity to one person and then they share it to one person, like you share, you share it to 10 people, they share it to a hundred people, a hundred people to a hundred thousand people to the whole world, you know? Um, And that, and you can clearly see that when you see on the larger picture, like how the effect that Hitler had, I guess you can make that argument on the whole world, right? Or Jesus, if you go the exact opposite, right? Um, the universal yeah. good versus the universal bad. And it's just interesting to say that people tend to attribute individuality to group identity in today's time more than they like to say that individuality influences group, group participation and things right. like that. Because I feel like, no matter like you're saying, like football fans and everything like that, people tend to coagulate into groups no matter what. Um, it just depends on how the group functions, on, yeah. How the individuals function in the group, right? But jumping somewhere else, I was when I was checking out your profile, I saw you wrote either. Wait, sorry, just just before we jump. Okay, I yeah. Mean, I have to I have to follow up on you because like I'm also the the essential existential philosopher in me also jumps out to that which i completely agree with you it's lenses of analysis right so if we're talking about uh, in the the lens of physics we could go you know there's no such thing as the individual um you know atoms are constantly changing, particles are changing between um you know e- even the, even the concept of an object is a, is a construct um and then we can think on the human level where we feel like individuals, feel like members of the group. And, and even on that human level, I'd say that the concept of the individual doesn't make sense. Because as you say, 
you might feel like Hitler then has knock-on effects for a bunch of people who then have knock-on effects for another and then you've got this disastrous aspect of humanity but then then the human Hitler was you know that there were all these forces that created Hitler outside Hitler so the concept of Hitler as an individual outside he, he is a manifestation of all the societal or internal processes that came before him or before him at that stage in his life so when people I, I'm sure you know you're a philosopher I'm sure you must have thought about determinism and yeah. the concept of responsibility I mean it just makes no sense to me that, that the idea of even calling you an individual makes no no sense when I I understand the point of it and, and I do it naturally but when I really get down get down to it the idea of thinking of you as some separate entity with some essence is just what is that like after this yeah after each of your podcasts you're probably a slightly different person and so yeah. does that mean you're partly me now or or what but then I'm also everything else and really we just go back to time equals zero of the universe and mm -hmm. and everything is just an expression of that the continuous sort of unfolding it's a very hard topic i constantly am am awake at night um uh, what, am I, what, what is the word i want to use i'm constantly awake at night rolling through my head the like just existential thoughts of how because it the, the the thought that i'll just give you a little insight in the th thoughts i have occasionally is one of the thoughts was uh, regarding time, right? So time is relative and that's why it moves faster and, and when you're doing something or it moves slower when you're doing something. And it's also why, um, it's also why um, your life can feel like it, people say it gets faster as it goes on, right? Because you've lived. So technically like you've lived longer every second you've lived. So like if you're, if you're 10 years old, you've lived and versus someone who's 90 years old, their concept of a second is so different because of the amount of time right, the proportion yeah because each second is a much smaller proportion yeah of their life, it seems quicker yeah right okay okay and so and so to go off of that it, it it makes you think if so they say time moves in one direction right but that doesn't mean that the direction that it, it's moving away from didn't exist at some point so the concept, one of the concepts that rolls around in my head a lot is death regarding the death, like the philosophy death, which is if you have died at some point, that means you had to have lived at some point. And so no matter what the, no matter where time goes in the future at that specific moment in the past on that timeline, you did exist. And so it makes you right. think, then my head goes, well, where specifically, like I must be a different person every second then because of how time works like i like me right. the memory i have of me at 10 doing on a water slide that will always exist at that moment and i will always exist at this moment talking to you and so yeah. Like, yeah it's a freaky thought to have and how you interchange between time it's like it really takes it does take away your individuality and it it, it adds a sort of the universe like you are a part of the universe as much as it's a part of you it's it's a weird freaky thought it is, and uh, do you know what? I'm an absolute, absolute novice. Like I, you know, I probably know less about physics than, you know, 
someone who's like studying physics and is 16 years old right now. Like I, I know nothing about physics, but I do remember hearing on, I can't remember there's a podcast reading that one view, and I don't know how prominent this is within physics. I think it might be a bit outdated now is the way, obviously the way we conceive time as humans is, is very different to how time actually operates. This stuff is so counterintuitive to our, human brains which haven't evolved to understand physics at all but one way of thinking about the universe and time is we sort of experience it as reading a book page by page but actually there's just the block there is just the book which exists right and that almost removes the whole idea of this chain of events the book already just exists like we just feel like we're reading it. And, you know, that that may be a very crude analogy to some school of thought within physics. But I, at the time, I remember finding it very helpful. But anyway, we've digressed into yeah. stuff I'm an expert on to stuff I'm absolutely no zero about. Listen, this is the part of, this happens with every single person I have on the podcast. This is the philosophical section where we just ramble about things that I have no yeah. idea about and freaks me out. Um, and everyone but, thinks we're high, but we're actually not high. <laughs> listen, listen. There is something to be said about people. Some of the smartest people I've ever met um, are, are some of the, the craziest conversations I've ever had are with high people who give me a thought in my head, and I'm like, I've never thought about that before. Yeah, so yeah, there is yeah. something to be said about how, I mean, like we said, natural things aren't necessarily better than synthetic things, but there is something to be said about plants that can make a person – freak out um i had a uh, sure. i had a before we continuing the digression i had a psychedelic artist yeah. on um oh, cool. and he he's my he's my he's my friend now but i've had him on a couple of times but he can talk for hours and one thing that he said to me that will always stick out to me right is humans think we are the dominant species on the earth right we think we're we're like oh i have i can go get this gun shoot this lion on the dominance i can create things i can destroy things and then he's like, but then you eat a, a small little fungus, a mushroom, and you are interdimensionally traveling. So what is really the most dominant species on earth? And I was just like, yeah. holy yeah. crap. Yeah, yeah. No, we're so, I actually want to write a book called The Most Self-Righteous Species because, you know, we really do think we're the center of the universe and the controllers, but of course we do because we're seeing things from our perspective and, and the the scales by which we're judging dominance or importance are human scale. Like it's almost a tautology. Of course, by human values, humans are the most important. Almost, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, plant psychedelics are super. I, I was briefly in contact uh, and going to some meetings of the psychedelics research group at Imperial, who are super interesting that they're, they're very involved in the uk in the research of using psychedelics uh within psychiatry and and the sort of vast potential benefits that psilocybin and ayahuasca well dmt and uh lsd the, the vast benefits that in the right context with the right patients these substances can have on, on uh, mental health mm -hmm. and, and remission from, from psychiatric illness. So 
jumping back to something you said that I want to get into. My dad has this theory that he told me to ask you. Um, my dad's not a talker like I am. I love to talk, but he does not. So he asked me to ask you this. Um, he said that um, he thinks that he has a theory that um, technology and and uh, things of that nature evolve faster than the human the human can evolve. Um, right. And so, what are your ideas on that? How fast things like AI and um, things like Neuralink, with I don't know if you know anything about that with Elon Musk, how those things are evolving so fast, social media, is it, and how fast the human brain and how the human as a, as a uh, species evolves. Yeah, so we would actually call, when we're talking about technology, from the sort of biological perspective, the evolutionary perspective, we think of technology as a form of culture. Technology, I know, you know, Colloquially, we use the term culture usually to refer to differences in values or festivals or rituals between ethnic groups. But, but broad, in the broader sense, from an evolutionary point of view, we think of culture as any manifestation, whether that be a behavior or an artifact or a technology that comes out of social learning, right? You know, when we make a computer, that's not encoded in our genes. We learn from others, we learn from a textbook, we take all this knowledge that humans have accumulated and create this technology. So that that is a cultural artifact, the, the computer or, or whatever technology you're thinking about. And yes, cultural evolution can happen super quickly and we're at a time where it's happening immensely quickly. And of course, genetic evolution happens extremely slowly because it's reliant on random mutations of which you know 99.9 percent have no benefit and occasionally you get a random mutation which helps adaptation and then that will take you know thousands of generations often to fixate in a population so genetic natural selection is very slow whereas you know over the course of my lifetime within one generation i've seen the cultural evolution of mobile phones go from being non-existent to that big to now something which is effectively a computer you carry around in your pocket but not just a computer something doing stuff that computers couldn't even do a couple of years ago so you know that's cultural evolution that's what you're that's all about technology evolving super quick now to say that technology evolves faster than humans is interesting because you are creating a dichotomy between the individuals or between the human species and technology. Whereas to a large degree, I'd say almost technology is part of the human species, right? So what has made us so successful as a species is culture. The fact that we don't rely just on genetic evolution, we create technology, right? Look at other species, uh, or other taps uh, like ants. I always say to my students, what, what's one of the, I, I'm really interested in ants, and what's one of the, what organism is spread across the world really, really widely dispersed? And ants are almost everywhere except for some regions of the Arctic, but there are 25,000 25, odd species of ants. Humans are one species and we're everywhere. So without biological speciation, we've colonized the globe. 
And we've done that through cultural evolution. We've done that through technology. You know, technology is as simple as animal fur, the coats that allow us to thrive in cold environments, etc. So for me, because culture has been so core to human adaptation, to separate the human from the technology, it's like you can look at an animal with a furry coat and that furry coat is part of the animal. Can we really say that the winter coat we create, you know, that some Inuit uh, creates by skinning some, some Arctic uh, animal and then creating a coat, is that coat separate from the individual? Because if it was another species where it was genetic, you'd say that the furry coat was part of the individual. So to separate technology and humanity, it's almost the two are, are linked. But if, if you are going to separate them, yes, technology is going so fast. And certainly our, our biology, the biological part of the individual, is not going as fast. It's not evolving as fast. And like we said near the start of this conversation, um, when you were talking about, I can't remember the term you used, but we see smartphones, the, the technology evolving so fast, and our brain is not equipped necessarily to deal with some of this, this rate of technological change. And it can have harmful effects or mal, you know, from, from the evolutionary point of view, you'd wonder whether it has maladaptive effects. Are there certain technologies which decrease survival and reproduction? Maybe contraception, you could argue, is a technology that is maladaptive. Um, and then from a more well-being perspective, or you might wonder whether certain technologies are pathological. Are these technologies, because our brain isn't adapted to them, are they harmful to us, like smartphones or whatever it may be? Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd agree with your dad in terms of our biology doesn't keep up with our technology, and that can be good and bad. Medicine is another form of technology, which has put less pressure on our biology because we can reduce suffering through medication. Um, so that's a great technology, which, which helps stop dysfunction in biology, but equally tech technology can create dysfunction in biology too. So what happens when, if you, if you don't um, connect humans with cultural evolution and um, technology, what happens when um, the humans create another species through technology, like a, an AI species? Like let's say in hundreds of years, they're able to create a conscious AI species. Would you mm. finally would you dissolve the, the connection between that cultural technology and that cultural evolution with oh, the human? Interesting. Yeah, right. So you mean, well, I guess it just, maybe this is just a semantic argument at the end of the day in terms of what do we mean by species, which surprisingly actually biologists aren't very good at dealing with this question. You know, the, the biological species concept is simply that two organisms that can reproduce and create an offspring that is also capable of reproducing are members of the same species. But, you know, we know that actually you can have interbreeding between species sometimes and it, it can be a bit confusing. 
So again, it's, it's the attempt to force a category on something which isn't a neat category in reality. So what is a species is difficult, like, but, so I don't know at what, what point you would say that say an AI is, you know, I, I'm making the argument that technology is almost part of the human species, even though it's not physically attached. At least it's an adaptation. It's just that in most species, genetic adaptations are encapsulated within the individual. Whereas in humans, we have a lot of genetic adaptations which aren't physically part of our bodies or our brains. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know when you would draw the distinction. I don't know whether you'd ever really call, I don't think I'd ever call AI a species because, I mean, is, is AI rep, self-replicating? I mean, I think species, in, in the context of how I'm thinking about it, is, is a biological entity. And I know I've just argued that technology, I'd say technology is almost an extension of our biology. It's an it's a output of our brain, which is biological matter but I wouldn't ever call the technology a species in of itself. There has to be, but it, these are all just words. Um, I mean, another thought that comes to mind in you saying that when you said, if we create a conscious AI, well, we don't really know whether consciousness is, what sort of, whether, whether you need wet hardware for consciousness. Can you, can consciousness emerge from silicon chips or do you need uh, brain matter and we don't really know the answer to that and again I, I'm not a philosopher but the philosophy of consciousness is super interesting and I would argue it it's look for I don't really know much about this but my instinct and from the little I do know is it's something we don't understand very well we understand a lot how consciousness can be manipulated and what the contents of consciousness are. So why I'm thinking about a particular thing or experiencing a thing, but to understand how experience itself emerges from physical matter, I don't think we really, it's, it's something to do with information processing, but I don't think we really understand that. So, and I don't, I'm not convinced philosophically how we could ever know if something is conscious. Like, I'm not even convinced I'm sure. No, I am sure you're conscious, but I, I, I certainly don't think I can know that, that you're yeah. conscious. I can never know that I'm conscious, right? That's about it. Yeah, that's the Kant argument, I think, therefore I am. Um, but you can't think for somebody else. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird um, concept because, like, I could be sitting here talking to you and you'd be a, um, you'd be a unconscious clever bot basically so clever yeah. bots like a thing that responds cleverly but it's not conscious right so right. yeah it's that's so weird you could be in your own subjective prison almost of clever bots and you're the only thing that can think for themselves that's a imagine figuring that out in the early 1600s You'd, you'd, you'd jump off a bridge probably like these guys yeah, who, I, I was literally just just gonna say i just immediately end yeah. my life yeah well because uh, it's so existential too like to understand yeah. that you will never know that other people love you like you love them 
or want you the way you want them or think the way you think. Yeah, it's, 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 it's scary. But, you know, to wrap this up, I want to ask you about this because this is something that plagues my life and it plagues a lot of people's life. And I saw you wrote a paper on it and or a study on it, the evolution of anxiety and the fear circuit in humans because like we said earlier, I mean, it makes sense to be afraid of snakes when you're a little primate and you're going to be eaten by a large snake. But it doesn't – one of the theories I have is that because there's nothing to be afraid of, life-threatening on all occasions uh, for humans, that we tend to fear things that have social destructions to our lives. So losing a job, um, not performing well at a job because, like, those are social – High, like the social hierarchy and that's what we place all our value in instead of survival and life what is the what is the evolution of anxiety basically is my question sure yeah so i mean anxiety you're right certainly even if there aren't things that directly threaten our survival in an obvious way um we might fear social impacts but remember survival like we said that how we started survival is just a means to reproduction if you're socially ostracized or something happens where you're losing social status and mating opportunities or resources that is still going to impact your your long-term evolutionary fitness the long-term replication of your genes so it, it would still make sense just because you're there's not something that's going to eat you it doesn't mean that it's not useful to to worry about losing your job or to worry about being ostracized from the group or or whatever it may be so i guess to start with i'd say anxiety or any emotional experience these have evolved as motivations of behavior right that's that's the point of them so if you, you know, if you feel physical pain, that motivates an aversive response from a harmful stimuli, right? If you, if you didn't feel physical pain, you know, you see this in people with leprosy where they lose sense of pain in their extremities, they get covered in scars and burns and whatnot, right? Physical pain serves a very important functioning in motivating aversive behavior. Now, anxiety is a emotional experience of uh, which motivates i guess it motivates behavior or preparation from a future threat and the type of threat can be a predator it can be loss of a romantic partner it could be loss of status it could be just about anything that over the course of evolutionary history has reduced evolutionary fitness, has reduced reproductive success. So status, higher status helps reproductive success. Um, access to food helps reproductive success. Good health helps reproductive success. So all of these things, when they are threatened or there's some sign in the environment that they might be threatened, an anxiety response makes sense you can have very acute anxiety response like fight or flight if a physical confrontation is there or you can have these sort of long-term or chronic you're thinking about the future of 
you know, maybe you've had a bad harvest as a farmer and you're feeling anxious about how you're going to have enough food to feed your family uh, during the next season. Um, so it can happen on different timescales with different levels of intensity, but ultimately it's about preparing for a future threat, either very acutely or very long term. And I think in terms of the high prevalence of anxiety disorders and just, you know, anxiety, you know, actually I won't even open that cumbrance, but yeah, the high prevalence of anxiety disorders we see in industrialized cultures, I think it's, it's a preoccupation with the future. It is the fact that, think about hunter-gatherers, their immediate return, they, they get food one day, they consume it straight away. There isn't a need to be planning so far in advance. Um, there's no benefit to that because you're, you, you consume, produce, you produce and consume on the same time scale. And we did this experiment with hunter-gatherers where we asked them, they're called future discounting experiments. How much do you value the present versus the future? And you can ask them, you know, do you want five bits of food today or 20 bits of food tomorrow or 30 bits of food tomorrow? They'll always pick today. They're very present. Um, if you ask most people, and you know, if I asked you, do you want $5 today? Or if you wait a couple of days, I'll give you $30 and you trusted me fully, you'd probably take the $30. Because sure, yeah. you're more prone to planning in advance. And we live in an economic system where rather than it being day by day, you know, my dad, I think the day I was born, enrolled me in this good school so that 30 years later, I'd have a good job. You know, we are planning our careers over decades, not our economic functioning happens over the course of decades, not not within hours. Um, so our brain is sort of calibrated in early life to be thinking super far ahead. And of course, the further ahead you think, the more opportunity there is to worry about future threats because your, your psychological future is so much longer than thinking about the, the immediate. And hence why, you know, mindfulness and, and the real stress and emphasis we're putting now on being present it it works because that is the, the problem with anxiety is a lack of presence it's a preoccupation with the future and the the other thing i'll say about evolution and anxiety is in terms of it having a benefit often in psychology the tradition is positive well yes positive psychology the idea that bad feelings are bad and good feelings are good and that's what we're aiming for um bad feelings exist for a reason actually there's a great book by randy randolph nessie who who's the sort of father of evolutionary medicine and was a psychiatrist himself called good reasons for bad feelings and he promotes diagonal psychology he's saying well actually bad feelings are there for a reason and also sometimes having too much good feeling is bad and not having enough bad feeling is bad. So if you're overly confident or overly, yeah, then if you're overly confident, you might take risks in dangerous situations. Or if you're not anxious enough, I mean, that's the sort of inverse, not being anxious enough. 
anxiety is important because you need to avoid threats sometimes. But the issue with anxiety is that it's distressing because it tends to be it tends to be a sort of hyperactive threat detection. So Nessie actually calls this the smoke detector principle, which is that it's better for any sort of threat detection system. It's usually better for it to be hyperactive than hypoactive. If you've got a smoke detector, if you've got a fire alarm, it's much better that that fire alarm occasionally makes false positive errors. Occasionally it goes off, when you're just doing a bit of cooking and there's a bit of smoke, but there's not really a fire. What you don't want is a fire alarm, which is underactive and actually there's a real fire, but it, it interprets this as just a little bit of smoke and doesn't sound. So the cost of not recognizing a threat when there is a threat is usually much larger than a false alarm. And as such, any threat detection system is usually designed, whether it be by an engineer or by natural selection, to be a bit overprotective, to be a bit paranoid. And our brains, our anxiety systems, are also like a smoke detector. They do do false alarms, and that's good. That's, it's distressing, but it's better to have a, a brain which gets anxious about false alarms than a brain which... Uh, doesn't get anxious when it needs to be anxious and it needs to respond to threats. And so to some degree, anxiety disorders might be expected. They're distressing, but they're more likely to happen than disorders with reduced that under anxiety, so to speak. But yeah, clearly there's, there's some reasons why in certain individuals, these are super activated to, to a level that's pathological uh, and that's its own discussion. But uh, yeah, anxiety certainly fulfills function. It's just about, is it, is it, is the response happening to some degree in the right context and with the appropriate magnitude? And when it, when it's a bit, too extreme or happening all the time that's when we need to treat it but a bit of an overprotective anxiety response is probably to be yeah. expected from the evolutionary perspective well man i think that's a good way to to end it this was a great conversation i had a lot of fun you yeah me too you uh taught me a lot and we're almost i would say we're probably an hour and 45 into this because we're almost at two oh, hours wow. we're almost at two hours but we had a couple of um yeah so yeah we we talked for a while it was a, it was it was a lot of fun so thank you so much man yeah i really enjoyed that do you cool. have any well, yeah. final thoughts no it's just nice to sort of span across from existential philosophy to um you know modern politics uh which i thought we would just be talking about evolutionary anthropology but it was nice to go all over the place in areas where i know i don't really know much either and just be hearing other people's thoughts so that that was pretty cool i really enjoyed it yeah that's that's the why i like to keep it un unscripted like i was telling you earlier it's more it's more engaging and it's more i feel like it's more um impactful to both participants if you just have a real yeah. conversation and and um, both parties are meeting and talking from just the just from their point of views not from a not from a designed point of view, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. No, I, I, when you first said it wasn't going to be scripted, I was like, hmm, I wonder whether the questions are going to be able to flow naturally if you're not an expert in that topic. But yeah, I think you're doing a really cool job, man. Like you're Thanks, doing man. a great job and, and the, everything came out really organically and was just super relevant. You know, you are, it's always nice talking to someone who's not an expert, but very intuitive in their understanding because they ask questions that make you think about things that sometimes you take for granted or have assumed. So yeah, that was really, really fun. It's a very nice way of you to say that. Um, I am a, a primitive monkey who understands things but doesn't dive into them 100% because I always tell people that I'm like, dude, I'm like this, like, I'm like a very curious, just normal person. That's what I would like to say. I have like, a, I feel like I'm, a, I'm decently smart, but I'm just very curious. And so I, I feel like that's a perfect way to how you described it. That's like what I like to do. Oh, well, that's it. I, yeah, I, I, I think smartness and curiosity are almost two sides of the same coin anyway. And it's a lot more fun to, to at least be a jack of many trades than to, well, each their own. But yeah, yeah. it's super fun to be learning about loads of different stuff all the time. So that's yeah. really cool. Again, man, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Episode 72 with Dr. Nikhil Shoudhury. Holy shit. Was that an engaging conversation? Dude, I love doing this because I really meet friends. I meet people that I'm going to be engaging with more and more. And they like what I do. You know, it, it's really cool to see people taking a liking to what I do. You know, and and enjoying coming on and, and engaging with my audience. And, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. Please hit me up if you guys have any information. And stay demanding.